the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. This is the Northern Alliance Radio Network, the longest-running conservative talk show in the Twin Cities. It's great to be back in Minnesota today. Political analysis of the good, the bad, and the outright crazy. Now, here's your headline act, Mitch Bird. Welcome back, Twin Cities and World. It's the wind beneath the right wing, the show that's making talk radio great again. The Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. It's been, oh, by the way, uh, I am the headliner edition, Mitch Berg. You, you probably have heard of me on the station. If not, welcome. Always glad to have uh, new people tune in here. Bring friends next time. Heck, bring 30 or 40 friends. There's plenty of room because it's radio. You don't have to pay for anything. Although we much appreciate it if you patronize our sponsors. I mean, that's really what keeps us on the air. And, uh, well, that's, you know, if you hear it on the ads, give them a call. Give them a try. Uh, they, they, I endorse almost all of them, to be honest. So uh, do that. At any rate, I'm the headliner edition of the Northern Alliance Radio Network. Uh, going on 20 years now, next March, 20th anniversary coming up of dominating all Twin Cities media, along with our friends Jack Tomczak coming up at 3 o'clock today here on AM 12A, The Patriot. Brad Carlson tomorrow from uh, 1 to 3 p.m. here on AM 12A, The Patriot. And, of course, King Banyan, Saturday mornings 9 to 11 a.m. on our sister station, AM 1440, The Businessman. Either way, any of the four of us uh, carrying on the proud tradition of the Northern Alliance Radio Network in dominating all Twin Cities media. So where to start with this next subject? This is a subject of, I think, profound importance. And honestly, I have to say at this exact moment in history, kind of kind of a subject of immense depression, uh, because by any objective standard, this is the greatest time in history to be alive. I mean, we've talked about this on the show before, but you look at any objective standard. This time in history is the best time there has ever been to be alive. And you, I mean, pick any objective standard you want. You want to talk about starvation. I mean, the vast majority of, of people who've ever lived as human beings and depending on on the, the the chronicle you want to believe i mean there have been several billion human uh, actually 64 billion human beings in all of human history and the vast majority of them died hungry ill or violently uh, or some combination of of the of, of all of them uh starvation uh, that was the norm. Infant mortality uh, claimed more people than just about anything else before they even had a chance to get started. The average woman di- had a one-third chance of dying, uh, one in ten chance of, uh, d- of dying in childbirth and lost one out of three children before the advent of modern medicine. And starvation, I mean, think about this. Up until 30 years ago, the world had endemic problems with famine. Today, 
obesity and obesity-caused diseases are a bigger problem worldwide than famine. That's the first time that's ever happened in all of history. I mean, 200 years ago, you had entire nations dying nearly away from famine, from from want of food, from lack of the basic necessities of life, because whatever system they lived under, from hunter-gatherers to 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 monarchies couldn't support them when times got bad. And here we are at a time when more people around the world, poor people, mind you, I'm not talking the wealthy. In fact, the wealthy uh, tend to be in, in great shape. They can afford to, to buy the food that keeps them in shape and, and to, to do what it takes recreationally to, to keep that trim form going. Whereas the world's poor, well, they have to work and they have to get the calories they can and they they have a bigger problem with type 2 diabetes today than, than they have with famine, which is a blessing in some ways. And yet, people, and when I say people, I mean mostly Americans and people in the West. And by people in the West and America, I mean predominantly the opinion-making class, the institution-running class, the, the people who get the attention in our society, the, the white upper middle class, highly educated classes that dominate our institutions and the media are profoundly depressed. And really, much of our society is is profoundly depressed. I ding on white upper middle class progressives because I'm surrounded by them. And yet you go to rural America and people are depressed as well. Jobs have left rural America. The opioid epidemic struck rural America much harder than the rest of America. And so there's a, there's a malaise afoot in America that that I have to I hate to say it is far worse than the malaise that was such a formative experience in my my, my formative years in my teens and early twenties the the, the the malaise that Jimmy Carter talked about when he was president and I want to talk about that because. To some extent, countries go in and out of their their mental depressive states, but sometimes they don't end, or sometimes they end very badly. I want to spend an hour talking about this malaise that we're in here and the sinister side of it here, because it's not just a case of the national blues. And of course, I'm not even going to talk about things like the deficit, the, over, the being overrun with national debt and with, with, uh, with, with fiat currency print, being printed as fast as the printing presses could crank it out and, and gutting the economy that way, uh, basically the equivalent of turning a hose on a sandcastle. I'm not going to do that. That's a whole separate issue, and it's a fairly objective uh, nuts and bolts, dollars and cents issue. I want to talk about some stuff that's a little more insidious than that. And I want to tell it for this hour from the context of three different people, three different people that you may or may not have heard of, but they emblem- <laughs> they're emblematic of so much as what, of what's wrong with Western society today. And there are three people, one of which you may know, but the first and the last, you may not have ever heard of them. Uh, the first is a fellow named Paul Renaud. Paul Renaud, R-E-Y-N-A-U-D, conventional spelling. Uh, the second person I want to talk about who is so utterly emblematic of, of the situation we face here in America and at least at the elite levels, our Western civilization today, that person being the bully we all knew from elementary school. 
And perhaps to put a more common name on this, I, I put Riley Gaines in there as someone you, you we, we're going to discuss this in the context of. She's not the bully. She is the uh, female swimmer who was robbed of scholarships, of titles, of championships, of competitiveness by transgender men. Now, we're not talking about the transgender issue. We're talking about the school bully. We'll come back to that. And finally, the final name we're going to talk about is a fellow named Ernest Röhm. Ernest whom? No, Ernest Röhm. You've never heard of him, probably. If you have, you know who I'm talking about, but you may not know why. At any rate, we'll come back to all three of them because they're all vitally important. They all illustrate things about the the situation we face today and and the the downsides of life here in America and in Western civilization and, and really the danger we face and the danger that you and I, especially you, but all of us who care about the future of this country and about the future of the Western civilization, the greatest, most mutually prosperous, most humane civilization in history. Those of us who care about that need to step up because it is going to be up to us at this rate. It will be up to us. So those three names, Paul Renault, the bully from elementary school, and Ernst Röhm. So anyway, this is a great time to be alive. And by all objective measures, this is a great time to be an American. America, leaving aside our current economic travails and, and the spend thriftiness and the fact that the dollar may collapse, leave all that aside. Kevin Williamson made a great point about five, six years ago in his book, uh, The End is Near and It's Going to Be Awesome, Say that the fundamentals of the American economy, uh, economically speaking, in terms of nuts and bolts and dollars and cents and objective factors are, are super strong. And if, if the overall economy, especially the government-regulated uh, version of the economy, were to collapse and the dollar went, uh, went to zero, it would be replaced soon enough by something that is sustainable and would reflect the economic vitality of this country. I touched on it briefly in my book, Trulbert, which came out in 2015, and <laughs> more and more seems to be uh, coming true in the market around us here today in so many so many ways, and I don't say that in a good way. But yet, even though this may be the greatest time in history to be a human and to be an American and to be a member of Western civilization, there is a rot. There is a creaking underneath the floorboards here that, that bespeaks a dry rot of the, the Western soul. And I want to take us back a little further to illustrate a similar rot, a similar national malaise that belied all the surface indications and was a thin veneer of well-being on top of a deep-seated depression that led to the destruction of a country and almost the destruction of the world. The country is France. Now, Americans, Americans, uh, conservatives uh, in particular, like to have fun with the notion of France. Uh, Twenty years ago, Americans were referring to them as uh, cheese-eating surrender monkeys because they wouldn't get involved in Iraq. Uh, and you can say what you will about that. Actually, the French have had for quite some time now a very keen sense of what is and is not in their national interests. Uh, fighting Saddam Hussein was in their interest in 1993. It was not in 2003. At, at any rate, that's more recent history. Let's go back to France in 1940. As World War II had broken out uh, with the invasion of Poland and then the invasions of Norway, Denmark, uh, and the looming invasions about this time uh, of 
of Belgium, the Netherlands, and, and finally France, by all objective measures, before the Blitzkrieg swept across the Low Countries, which, again, is coming over 83 years ago next week, by most objective measures, France was the most powerful military in the world, certainly the most powerful in Europe. They were in, in Western Europe. They were they, – they had more men. They had more – uh, they, they had more uh, equipment. They had more tanks than the Germans who were famous for the and would become famous for their, their armored warfare over the next year. Uh, it would change the way we see warfare forever. And yet the French had more of it. In some respects, they had, they had better tanks than the Germans had. They had more better artillery. They had more not better aircraft. It's a long story. We don't need to get into a whole lot of, of history, historical pedantry here. But France, by all rational measures was the most powerful nation in the world this time 83 years ago. And yet, by mid-July of 1940, France was conquered, and it was conquered shockingly easily. Not a whole lot more involved than us conquering Iraq 20 years ago. How did that happen, you might say? Well, it has way too much in common with the way life is here in America today, and I want to talk about that when I come back. Uh, my name's Mitch Berg. This is the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. Uh, go nowhere. I will be right back. Welcome back, Twin Cities and World. It's the Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. Mitch Berg here. Jack Tomczak coming up at 3 o'clock. Don't forget, you can go on the Stand with Israel tour with Dennis Prager and Mike Gallagher, October 25th through November 3rd, this coming fall here. This is going to be the trip that you will drive yourself crazy wondering why you didn't go. Not too terribly long. So get ahead of the game. Get in on the trip. Uh, go to am1280thepatriot.com. Click on the Stand with Israel tour Banner. It's really all there is to it. That's all you got to do. Well, and get in on the trip, naturally. Uh, we'll have to work up a trip for the Narn here. I did, that's, that's one thing I've learned about this, this station and this situation is uh, if you really want something to happen, you just essentially have to pretend like it already has. So maybe, maybe the Stand with Norway tour needs to come up in the near future here. Hmm. Thinking. Thinking. At any rate, uh, we're talking this hour about the, the new national malaise, and I'm looking at it through the context of three people. Uh, the bully from elementary school, uh, Ernst Röhm, more on him later, and a fellow named Paul Renaud. And he was the prime minister, the president, actually, of France, this time 1943, uh, 1940, rather, 83 years ago this month. And he led over a country that had every reason to be optimistic by any objective standard as they looked at potentially the Germans, uh, who were just about to invade Norway, Denmark, and uh, in the coming summer would invade the, uh, the Netherlands and Belgium on the way into France. He had every reason to be confident that his country and its military would prevail or at least be able to stand off the Germans in the upcoming war that pretty much everyone at this point knew was going to happen. Uh, People in America today riff on the French. People act like, uh, I mean, the, the classic phrase 20 years ago was cheese-easing surrender monkeys. And even in 1940, it wasn't true. Uh, the French 
had some bad decisions. They had some poor leadership. They had invested and gone long on some technology that did not pay off for them. For example, they didn't invest in radios at all. Uh, they kept uh, their messaging on phones, which are nice and secure, and couriers, which are even more secure but slow and prone to not showing up or get <laughs> having traffic accidents. And, and phone lines were prone to falling down or getting blown up and so forth. So lots of little things that undercut the French, but cowardice was not one of them. Uh, the first major tank battle in the history of the world, uh, where suppo- the supposedly invincible German panzers were, would have, by conventional wisdom, mopped the floor with the French, it was a draw, which, when the Germans are attacking, is inequ- really a defeat. Uh, so they had to keep moving. They were not able to. Uh, in terms of cowardice, the, the history books show countless examples of French fighting far above their weight. Uh, for example, had the French not batted way, uh, kicked way outside their coverage at the Battle of Dunkirk, the war would have ended in the summer of 1940 because the French, British Expeditionary Force and 150,000 French troops would not have escaped from being uh, cut off in Belgium and northern France. They fought ferociously. Uh, and, and some of the things that amateur historians and, and know-it-alls say about the French, like, oh, they hid behind the Maginot Line, that's not true. Uh, the French had lost, in World War I, out of 8 million combatants, had lost 3 million men, killed, wounded, missing, captured. That's 3 out of 8. Had the United States had a similar casualty rate in World War II, we would have lost 4 million dead, wounded, and captured. It was well under a million, and uh, of, of whom 400,000 were killed. That rate would have been four times as high had we had the same casualty rate in World War II. And, and it affected French society, which is why they built the line of fortresses along the border uh, to, uh, to, to, so that a bunch of middle-aged reservists could hold off an army full of young draftees who, by all rights, should have beaten them. It was it was it leveled things out. Hey, they didn't connect it all the way to the North Sea. Well, that's what the young guys and the tanks are supposed to defend. Uh, it, so much of what we learn as history in America, especially history of of World War II in France, is just so incredibly bogus. Uh, the French were not cowards. The Maginot Line was not a mistake, and the French were as thoroughly modern, with some key exceptions, as any other country in in the war at that point without getting all pedantic about it. But there was a problem, a huge problem. World War I had left France morally and societally completely exhausted. Uh, again, the casualty rates were so horrific in World War I that an entire generation suffered a baby bust. I mean, three million men out of eight million men of prime childbearing years were taken completely or partially out of the population. And even the ones that survived unscathed were not feeling too much like having children after what they'd been through. So France went through a huge population bust. And that was reflected by many other things within France. In fact, cultures that stop going long on the young tend to suffer terribly uh, from, from societal depression. France was not only not an exception. In fact, it was a key poster child, if you will, of this syndrome. French culture was tapped out in 1940. French culture did not believe in itself. French culture 
was in a battle to, to redefine itself, and the key definers were duking it out in the street between the, quote, far right, who in France were monarchists, or some French fascist groups. They were, in fact, French uh, fascists who were aligned with the fascists in Italy and Spain and elsewhere. And they duked it out with the communists. Both parties wanted to pick up the wreckage of French culture and run with it their way. And by the time France had gone through 22 years of this and countless rebootings of their government, uh, French, the French were tired of it. They, they, they knew they didn't want to be conquered. You have a hard time finding more than a tiny percent of French people who welcomed being conquered, and they regretted it all shortly. But they didn't really, French society as a whole only had so much stomach for reverses. And it was showing in their demographics, in their, in their, in their sociology. In so many ways, France just was not up for a major reverse. And unfortunately, we're in a very similar situation today. Wall Street Journal, uh, came up with a story with the NRC. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, that found that some of these same key indicators in American society are not doing well. 38% of Americans say patriotism is very important to them, which is just about half what it was 35 years ago. 25, no, 25 years ago, 1998. Slightly more Americans, 39%, placed the same importance on religion, which is down from 62% in 1980, uh, 1998 rather, 25 years ago. That's down by a solid third, little better, but still under a, uh, under 40% of Americans find religion very important, down from a significant majority, uh, plurality, almost a supermajority within a generation. The percentage of Americans who said raising children was very important to them, this, this is catastrophic. In 1998, it was 59%, almost two-thirds, almost a, uh, a plurality, uh, sorry, almost a supermajority. Today... 30%. Now, these are the things on which a society, a healthy society, bases its, its, its future. If you're not having children, if you're not raising them in a belief system that, that focuses on a future, if you're not raising them to have faith in and to put commensurate energy into the community around them, and by the way, involvement in the community has had a similar hit. Community involvement is down by a solid third over the last 25 years after being up considerably of all things. That's the one of the, of, of, uh, one of two of the measures. Again, those being patriotism, religion, having children, community involvement. Of those four, only community involvement went up in the 20 years after 1998 and, and from there fell by a solid half. Community involvement down under 40% again, like all these other key measures. In fact, the only one of the key measures that went up over the last 25 years was the regard for money, the importance of earning money, which has gone up significantly. And it went up 20, from 25 years ago and is up from uh, 15 years ago as well. Uh, the chairman, I mean, money is and by the way this is uh by the way belief in tolerance for others uh is also way down i mean for all of this society's focus on on uh, on, on equity and wokeness and and we're all in this together and in this house we love dot 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 
Four years ago, 80% of the American people thought tolerance for others was important. Today, it's 56%, which is above even, but dropping fast. The only measure that has been up, like I said, is money, which is a fine thing, but it is, I mean, being ambitious and wanting to earn your keep is certainly a fine thing. But it's a materialistic measure, not a moral measure. Having money does not, in and of itself, make the next generation insured, does not make the next generation a sure thing. Uh, In fact, it can be quite irrelevant to having a healthy, happy, productive uh, generation full of good citizens, people who are there to to be good citizens of a nation and of the world. You're you're, you're growing up, (laughs) bringing a generation along, I should say, that may or may not have a certain degree of financial well-being. That's certainly uh, we're up for debate, but is beyond a rational doubt rootless in terms of the things that make a society survive. Community involvement, patriotism, faith, faith in a higher power. Uh, most of us are Christians. Honestly, any higher power is better than no higher power, and that's where things are headed. And we've had that happen before in our society. We've had peaks and troughs in faithfulness. The early 1800s were not a great time for organized religion in America. Things bounced back. But were they ever this, as bad as they are now? Uh, now's the kind of time where you'd like to see something like happen in 1980, where where at the depth of our national malaise back then, uh, the U.S. hockey team came along and, and led a thirst for a, a rejuvenation of the American spirit. We'll talk about that when we come back. Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 12, the page. Don't know, we'll be right back. Welcome back, Twin Cities and World. Uh, the Kindness Sweepstakes is back. This is one of my favorite events of the year, and I have many favorite events here at AM 12, the Patriot. Kindness Sweepstakes, the Kindness Challenge Sweepstakes, I should say, brought to you by Estate Claim Services and the Salvation Army, uh, is a, the big, one of my favorite of the year. You could win $5,000 for committing acts of kindness uh, on the world around it and win an additional five grand to donate to a favorite organization uh, of your own. Uh, one of five that we have uh, selected for you to choose from. This is huge. So anyway, go to am12athepatriot.com, click on the Kindness Challenge Sweepstakes, and get all the details there. You can win every day, and we get extra entries for being kinder than the rest. Be relentlessly kind. Be a, a juggernaut of rampant kindness. Uh, the world will be a better place if we all did. This way, you get a little extra jing for it. How, what could be better? Nothing. Nothing could be better. Go to am128thepatriot.com. Uh, Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, the paper. We're talking about the malaise facing the United States today and what to do about it in the context of three different people. I spent the first couple segments talking about France in 1940, the uh, exhaustion that was faced by the French people and, uh, and and how it led, it helped lead them, one of the most powerful nations in the world, pound for pound, uh, to fall to the Germans in less than six weeks. And almost uh, lead by extension to the fall of Western civilization, or at least European civilization. The the leader, by the way, was uh, the president Paul Reynaud, who resigned rather than surrender. Uh, they found someone who would surrender, and thus France did surrender. And it took the French equivalent of the miracle on ice, only much more so, to bring the nation back. 
when France was liberated, you're welcome, GIs and, and, and Tommy Atkins and, and free French fighters and of all types. Uh, w- when they came back, they were led by Charles de Gaulle, who, when people talk about na- American nationalism, by the way, uh, they would choke up their skulls if they had to deal with the nationalism and the national interest focus of the likes of Charles de Gaulle, who led France for most of uh, the next 20 years. He, he and politicians aligned with him. Rebuilding French nationalism in a way that, uh, like Ronald Reagan, only with serious teeth. They were serious about it. And it worked. You say what you will about France today. Would have been a very different place today without that. Uh, so would Western civilization for that matter. That was Paul Reynaud. So let's move on to the second period. Um, and by the way, I put that context out there so that you know, this was a leader who, like us, was in a time where he had every reason to be feel optimistic in every material measure. And yet the moral measure, the psychological measure, the psychiatric measure of his nation could not stand up to the stress. Is America in the same status right now? <sighs> We'll talk about that. The next person I want to talk about for purposes of putting some context in the times we're in is a little more mundane than Paul Renaud. It's the bully that bedeviled you in elementary school or junior high. If they didn't bedevil you, they bedeviled your brothers or sisters or your, or your, your children, perhaps your parents, maybe you, you remember what they were like, though. The worst, I mean, the dumbest bullies would just come at you swinging. They would just look to beat on someone. And and in retrospect, most of them were probably terribly abused children who were taking out their, their aggression on, on somebody they, they figured was helpless. There was a more insidious bully out there, the, the smarter bully with perhaps more subtle pathologies leading them to act the way they did. These are the ones who would get in your face and kick sand in your face or or poke at you or spit a little bit as they talked and and, and say, well, what are you going to do about it? You going to cry? You going to cry, you little baby? And, and taunt you. Where in a situation where there was really only two, maybe three outcomes, you could take the su- uh, suggestion and cry, which, by the way, if you were a child who was not raised to hit people, was entirely likely. And, of course, that would give the, the bully his, his cheap or her cheap little what because girls do it too. Or you can hit back, and the bully would then run to the teacher and say, hey, hit me first, because I didn't literally hit him. I mean, spitting, teasing, kicking snow on you, none of that's physical violence. It's all stuff you could ignore. They just taunt you until you do something, until you lose your cool. And lash back at them, which leaves you getting in trouble. You were the one who got detention. Ask me how I know. (laughs) Uh, A kid who shall remain nameless and who actually grew up to be his own worst punishment, I must say. I wound up up doing some jail time for nonviolent crimes, but really bizarrely stupid ones nonetheless. I was into that particular vibe. And one time I did actually kind of cough him one and I'm the one who got in trouble. And there's a segment of our society that knows exactly how this works. And they they are in power. I, I bring this up 
in light of two events that have happened this past week. Last week on the show, we talked about a, uh, a, an episode that happened at a Turning Point USA rally at San Francisco State University where Riley Gaines, a young woman who was, uh, was a competitive swimmer, still is a competitive swimmer, but is now mostly an activist against the idea of allowing men under the guise of being trans women competing in women's sports, which completely erases women in women's sports. I mean, the, the, the it's a mismatch. Physically speaking, men, even men who've been going through hormone treatment uh, for years, have significant advantages, not, not just in muscles, but the, the construction of the skeleton itself is better for directing effort, for for producing strength and leverage and, and explosive power, and, and not to mention the things that are more hormonal, like muscle mass, like muscle strength, like the construction of the muscular structure. I just said that twice. Uh, like pain resistance, which men have more of unless they're in the middle of giving birth, which, by the way, men don't do. Sorry to tell you, ladies. Um, but they, they have these advantages even after many of these advantages survive hormonal transition. So, and and Riley Gaines and female athletes, I should say, bio-female athletes like her, have been paying the price for this for quite some time now. She was agitating, she was led, not agitating, leading, a, uh, she was the keynote speaker at a Turning Point USA rally at San Francisco State, which was uh, bum-rushed by rioters. Riley Gaines and the Turning Point staff had to barricade themselves into a back room as gangs of largely white upper-middle-class droogs uh, rattled on the doors, banged on the doors, threatened to kill them, said, hey, we'll let you out if you pay, you know, stuff like that. And the administration at San Francisco State, to their everlasting credit, took a strong stance against this uh, assault on the First Amendment with violence and violent intent and, and really terrorism, stochastic terrorism and literal terrorism. They, and so kudos to, to San Francisco. <laughs> I can't keep a straight face. No, no. San Francisco State uh, de- disgraced itself. After the event, uh, San Francisco State sent the following email about the Riley Gaines Turning Point USA event. Quote, Dear San Francisco State Community, today the San Francisco State finds itself at the center of a national discussion regarding freedom of speech and expression. Let me say by saying clearly the trans community is welcome, blah, blah, blah. Thank you to our students who participated peacefully in Thursday evening's event. It took tremendous bravery to stand in a challenging space. I'm proud of the moments where we listened and asked insightful questions. This is madness! They were a bunch of rampaging toddlers, except in semi-grown-up bodies, verbally threatening violence, verbally intimidating and physically intimidating people into having to hide out until the police came to escort them out. It's a lie. Sort of like the bully spitting in your face, poking at you. Pulling at your hair as you're sitting at your desk, daring you to act up because the San Francisco State, I mean, they they covered up. They ignored the violence and complimented their their white middle class droogs for being mostly peaceful, like they should get a cookie that nobody died. 
Another great example this past week in Nashville. Six children, at a, actually three children and three adults at a Christian school killed by, it, it needs to be said, a transgender boy, i.e. a girl, with a gun, murdered six of them. And who got all the attention? Three legislators who beclowned themselves by staging an insur leading, I should say, an insurrection at the Capitol of a bunch of droogs who wanted to disarm the law-abiding citizen because something, something massacre. And Kabbalah Harris, who came to Nashville to honor the legislators and erase, essentially, the six dead Christians— because they knew who the real victims are, the three legislators who staged an insurrection against the rules of the Tennessee House of Representatives, and, oh, by the way, mourning the transgender youth who murdered six people. The six Christians are erased. And don't think for a moment this isn't on purpose. This is the bully spitting in your face, poking you, taking your stuff out of your locker when you're not there to protect yourself or it, telling lies about you if you're more female. That's the way female bullies tend to work. Trying to goad you into reaction that they can go to the principal or to the media, same thing, and say, hey, look at the violence probe one. So that's the bully from elementary school and their place in the context of of life today. We have one more person to talk about, perhaps a little more obscure, maybe not. Uh, We'll get to that when we come back. Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. Welcome back, Twin Cities and World, Northern Alliance Radio Network. Hey, don't forget, uh, you can check out How the Left is Stealing Your Church right now on Salem, uh, SalemNow.com. Go to am12athepatriot.com. You can get to all of the cool features I talk about every hour here, the tours, the, the news channel, the fish, the kindness challenge, all of it. Just go to am12athepatriot.com. It is the one-stop shop for all the cool stuff this station does for you. And you, and, and me too, absolutely. Uh, Northern Alliance Radio Network, AM 1280, The Patriot. So uh, we're talking about all that ails our society in the context of three people, technically uh, technically three and a half. The first, of course, Paul Reynaud, prime minister, actually president of France in 1940, 83 years ago, who had every reason to believe his society would prevail or at least survive. He was wrong for purely emotional and, and psychological reasons, those count. And also the bully you knew from junior high school who uh, told in the context of Riley Gaines, uh, actual woman who is uh, speaking out against having to compete against actual men identifying as women, uh, and also the erasure of the children in Nashville, which is an attempt to rile you up. And that riling you up to try and get you to lash out, to either shut up and go away or lash out one or the other, uh, plays into our, our third person. And before I give you the third person, I just want to say that the the theme behind this whole thing is self-government is hard. I mean, wouldn't it be cool in so many ways? I mean, if you're a grown-up, you probably went past this phase. But most people, I think, go through a phase where they think, oh, man, being an adult is so hard. I would love 
to go back home and let mom and dad take care of business and deal with all the hard stuff that I'm just tired of dealing with myself here. Self-rule is like that, only it involves millions of people having to somehow find a way to get along well enough and long enough to pull in the same direction to make a viable society work. And when it works, as it has for most of the last, I don't know, 230 odd years in this country, it can be a wonderful thing. But it needs, it's like a, it's like a garden with annual, uh, garden with annual plants. It needs constant care and tending because it is difficult. Now, the third name I brought up is a fellow named Ernst Röhm, and you've probably never heard of him. And if you do hear of him, if you have heard of him, it's because you're a German history geek and you know that he was the leader, the initial leader of what we call the brown shirts in Nazi Germany. Uh, the, the initial uh, direct action arm of the Nazi party, the thugs who went out into the streets and, and found opposition party events and beat them up, basically. They were, they were thugs. They were literally to the Nazi party what anti-fa is to the Democrat party today, or at least to the progressive movement in America today. Let's be fair about this. They are the direct action thug wing of the, uh, of, of the, of big left. Let's just put it that way. Anström was their original leader. Now, I used his name because, let's be honest, in our society today, if you mention Adolf Hitler, some chowderhead with uh, more knowledge of online memes than of history will go, hey, you violated Godwin's law. Oh, shut up. I, I, I've, I've qualified to do this. I minored in history and German to study German history. I don't make these comparisons idly, but I also see how modern society works. I figure you got to pick the obscure name. So I did. Anström. Uh illustrative example in many ways because of course like many people on the left he his party ate him eventually he wound up being assassinated by hitler uh himself to consolidate his power but that's jumping ahead of the game here uh he proves self-rule is hard because he was able to exploit that fact he and the rest of his henchmen were able to exploit that fact in the early 1930s again like france germany had suffered terribly during world war one they had not as badly as the french in many ways, but far worse in a few others here. And they, they, they knew what they were doing in the sense, in a sense that I think the modern American left knows what it's doing. Uh, the, the, both parties, both parties of extremists in the early 1930s, uh, all the way through the 1920s, back to the late 19 teens, had direct action arms who were frequently very heavily armed. I mean, civil war broke out or near civil war broke out all over Germany between 1918 and the early 1920s with actual armies duking it out in the streets of Munich and uh, other southern German cities in particular. And while the armed conflict tapered down after a while, after some order was reinstalled, the order was really kind of uh, more of an ongoing uh, slugfest. And, and the slugfest worked like this. The communists would have a rally or the socialists would have a rally. Ernström's brown shirts would go and clobber them. The papers sympathetic with the Nazi party said, hey, the communists provoked it. And that's what happened. And the people who were leaning communists would say, wait, that's not what happened. And of course, it would be tit for tat. The same thing would happen the other way. The, uh, a rightist group would have a rally. The communists uh, and their direct action group, the, the ancestors of anti-fa, would go beat them up and say, hey, we were provoked. Well, both sides would do this back and forth and back and forth, ratcheting up the, the strife. 
making it impossible not to be an extremist to the point where the average German, the average German in a village somewhere in in Rheinland-Pfalz was sick of it. If they fi- they figured, not without some reason, perhaps, if this is what self-government is like, bring back the Kaiser. Bring, bring back the Holy Roman Emperor, for crying out loud. Get this... Get this self-government thing out of our face. This is making life miserable. Things just keep getting worse and worse. And finally, by the time that the German government appointed an extremist cabinet, and I won't have to say the name because it could be a, it could have been from either side. The other side said, sure, this is a drive to the extreme. It was Hitler. Uh, the, the communists said, sure, this is a drive to the extremes. It will benefit us because people will get sick. Of, of the constant push to the extremes. They're tired of it. And they were right. They miscalculated on, on who was best able to exploit that. But I don't think we can be quite as confident about today's modern American left. As bad as they are in history, they could read this much. Uh, we have a similar erosion of public confidence and really public morals, as we discussed in the first segment uh, today as the French and really the Germans had in the 1920s and 1930s. And we have a threat, technically from both extremes, but let's be honest, it's the left that's doing most of the, 90% of the violence these days. And we can work through those numbers anytime you want. But whether whether they, they take it out on the streets or that, or whether they just make the average American in the streets at home, sick of the whole thing, and just beg for someone to come and make it all go away. A, a, a strong man, if you will. They win either way. And I could be egalitarian and say it could be an extremist from either side. We, we all know who it's going to be. We all know who it's going to be. And that's why we need a moment, maybe a bigger moment than we had in 1980. Because at least in 1980, all the Americans, even Jimmy Carter, as bad of a president he was, he was an American patriot. He was on the right side. He, he saw a different way forward than most of us did. Most of the American people agreed with us and voted for Ronald Reagan, and that gave us mourning in America. <sighs> What's going to bring us mourning in America? Well, that's going to be up to us over the course of next year now, isn't it? We'll be talking about that extensively over this next year. But just to be clear on the threat we face and how that threat could play out with a whimper of being sick of it all just as easily as with a bang, whatever that bang means. Thank you all for tuning in. Jack Tom Zach up next. See you all next week. God bless you all. God bless America. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.